0: Uh, Reformation Sunday. Yes, today uh, is the Sunday where the church celebrates uh, the Protestant Reformation and specifically the uh, 95 Thesis that uh, Martin Luther nailed uh, to the door saying that uh, there's something the matter and that God has something better than what man has created in God's place. And so we celebrate that. And really that last uh, slide of that last song about uh, we're saved by grace, right? We're going to overcome our sin by grace. We're going to reach the end by grace really sums up exactly uh, the, the heart of the Reformation. Um, and so we celebrate that. We are direct uh, descendants of that. And so we praise God for uh, men and women who have gone before us uh, that were not ashamed to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ regardless of um, what might come. And that leads us exactly into where we're going to be this morning in our text. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Book of First John, chapter two, um, and we're going to read verses. Uh, we're going to start by reading uh, with verse fifteen, uh, and we're going to continue in our series in First John uh, entitled "That You May Know." And so, we're going to this morning we're going to look specifically at verses fifteen and seventeen and see what exactly it was. That, that, that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, wanted the church of that time to know and then how that applies to us so that we today may know it as well since God himself is not defined by time like you and I are. And so kids, uh, obviously, you guys are in with us this Sunday, the first Sunday of the month. We always have uh, the older kids in so that they would feel that they're actually a part of our church and a part of the way that we disciple. And so guys, if you ha- um, have paper and pen... Uh, you guys, it's okay to take notes by drawing pictures of what you hear, okay? So, if you guys hear something and you're like, that's cool, I'm going to draw that, draw it. That's okay. Um, Now, it's not okay to draw the Broncos beating the Green Bay Packers today, because we'll save that for later. But this morning, um, if you hear something in the message, uh, then guys, please, we want to encourage you guys, teach you guys how to take notes, teach you guys how to learn uh, and how to value Sunday mornings, the gathering of the church. So with that, this morning, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, what the Apostle John, really the Holy Spirit, as we have said, uh, wants us to know this morning is what is from the world. What is from the world, and he contrasts that with is what, what with what is from the Father. and And listen, this morning um, is very uh, very imperative not only uh, for us as as we are uh, want to be Christ's followers, but it, it, we have to understand these. This is why we're stopping and looking at just two verses this morning, is because these two verses completely set the table, if you will, uh, for where John's going to go. What we're going to look at next week with false teachers. And so what he does this morning is, is kind of somewhat generally, we'll see a little bit, but he sets the table of, of really what he's going to go into to specify of what is from God, what is, what is good teaching, we might say, what is faithful teaching. Let's say faithful teaching, not good teaching, uh, because somebody can be a faithful teacher without being uh, really good at it, uh, because the message is, they're, they're faithful to the message. And some people can be really good at speaking, um, and their message is not at all faithful to the gospel. And so he's really going to set the tone in these two verses uh, for the difference between what is good and faithful teaching and what what we come to know um, as heretical teaching or or teachings um, that the church rejects because they are not faithful. And so this morning as we get into this, I want to to read from you actually for two verses from Matthew chapter 7. Because I can't help but think that when the Apostle John is writing to this church... Remember, the Apostle John walked with Jesus. He sat with Jesus. The apo- like, men, we're getting ready to go on a camp out. I hope all of you guys go. But like the Apostle John stayed out overnight with Jesus around a campfire. Like he walked with him. He traveled with him. He was a firsthand witness to the miracles and the demons that were cast out. And everything that Jesus did, the Apostle John was there. And Jesus so changed the Apostle John's heart that although his nickname was one of the Sons of Thunder, that the Apostle John had no shame in saying that he was the one whom Jesus loved and that he was the one that would uh, lay his head on the chest of Christ. And so in Matthew chapter 7, I think these are some of the words that that John was drawing from when he writes this letter to this church. And he says, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, excuse me, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so these two gates that Jesus uses or the pathways that Jesus used um, are really the basis for where John says, this is of the world, this is of the Father. And I can't help but remember when we started this series, I kind of tried to give you the image of, of, an, of an older uh, grandfather sitting in a rocking chair gathering his grandkids and great-grandkids around him as he's going to begin to impart wisdom to them. He's going to be in telling them of his life stories, right? Um, and, and so that's kind of the, the posture of John in writing this letter. Is he's an elder in the faith, he's elder in age, and he wants to write to these people and remind them that God is good in the midst of trying circumstances. Because this letter was in response to a mass exodus from the church. A mass exodus because of false teaching. So John is really starting to get at the heart issues of what these people are struggling with. Because there was the teaching of Gnosticism that came and, and pulled a lot of people out of the church. And rather than believing that salvation comes by faith in the work of Christ... They believe that they don't believe you you had to repent from your sin, but that you look deep down inside of you to find the true light that is already there. You just have to uncover it. You just have to to find out what it is for you, and it's relative. Right? There is no there is no truth. There is no no bar by which all things should be measured. It's all based upon what I find and what I feel is good, and it's very relative. And so John reminds them of that. And so let's read this morning first John chapter 2. And to provide some of the context, I want to read all the way through verse 27 with you. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever." Verse 18, "'Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge.' I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you have heard from the beginning uh, if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that your spirit would illuminate the truth of what is from the Father and what is not from the Father. Father God, that that we would be um, matured today, God, as we look to your word. And Lord, that your spirit would give us the courage to repent the courage to confess, the courage to acknowledge sin as sin, and to turn and to embrace Jesus. Help me this morning, God, to teach uh, and talk in a way that is helpful to the church and not harmful. And we pray, God, and we rely on you. Uh, God, we thank you this morning for uh, uh, our forefathers who have gone before us, God. Lord, men who stood up in the face of opposition. Men who counted their own physical wellness and their physical suffering as nothing compared to the glories of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. May we follow in their footsteps after Christ. May we cling to Christ. May our banner be grace. May our strength be grace. May our fuel be grace. We pray this in the sufficient and supreme name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Wouldn't it be easier in life if there was one path? Can we even imagine that? Like, Can we even pretend or, or put ourselves, uh, let's just put ourselves with Adam and Eve in the garden when there was one path. There was no right or wrong there, as far as uh, there was no wrong that had entered the world yet. And it would be easier for us. You know, it's, it's funny. It's like when we take our kids to the store um, and they have allowance money or birthday money that they want to spend, right? And, and they only have so much money, which means they can only get so many things. But there's so many more things for them, <laughs> right, that they want. And then there's that battle of what do I get? Can I get this? Can I afford this? How much more do I need? Dad, can I borrow next month's allowance, <laughs> right? Like all of it. All of these things. Um, but life is full of choices, right? And, and, and so Jesus lays out for his disciples, and, and the Apostle John here in the book of First John is, is reminding us that there are ultimately two choices in life. And although we, would, we, we say in theory we would like only one choice, we know that we wouldn't really like one choice because then we would be upset that we only have one thing to choose from. Uh, Hence, the complaining around the dinner table at night when there's vegetables on the plate. But God, in his fatherly care, his divine fatherly care, did not see fit for there to be one choice. Even before sin had entered the world with Adam and Eve, there was the two choices. God had created everything for them and placed them in the garden and said, "It it is good. And here's what's amazing. Listen, Although there was the tree of which they were not to eat, God still said the creation of that tree was what? It was good. God declared that everything that he had made was good. And so a part of being created in the divine image of God as human beings we are, and that is what separates us from the rest of his creation, God had given us the option to sin. Is there anything that God can't do? Yes and no. God has the option, but God cannot sin. God cannot do anything outside of His good and perfect and holy will. And so, we, had we not have had that option, we would, God could not have declared that we were created in the image of God. Most of the time in the church, or a lot of time in the church, especially as we look at Reformation Sunday, is spent arguing free will. And, and, and nobody denies free will. Adam and Eve had, God said, choose. Don't choose this one. It's not good. Choose the rest. But sadly, they chose. And as we've talked about a lot here, especially on, on Sundays and in our missional communities and our men's groups and women's groups, is the, is, is the truth that a, 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 a person who is not made alive in Christ... They exercise their free will according to their own fleshly desires. And this is what John's getting at the heart of. We're going to see this in a few minutes. But the goodness of God in saving mankind is that he uh, makes their free will alive, if you will. And, and they are no longer in bondage to their own free will, choosing what gives them pleasure. Choosing what is against God. And so John says that there are, these, there are these two ways to live. You can abide in the world or you can abide in the Father and what is from the Father. This also brings to mind, you guys familiar with the parable of the seed and the sower in Mark chapter 4. Where Jesus tells a story of, of, a, of a farmer or a sower who goes out and he sows seed. And Jesus, of course, later explains this parable to say that the seed is the word of God. The sower is like, is is you and I, right? It's you and I. It's not just the preacher. It's you and I, God's people. We're to be out sowing the word of God. We're to be out proclaiming the word of God. And Jesus says that, that when we do that, it falls on different types of soil. There's some of the seed that just falls on the pathway. And immediately when people hear the gospel, Satan immediately steals the truth from it. And they just immediately reject it. Whether that be the form of pride, whether it be the form of lusts of the flesh, we're going to see this morning, We don't. it takes on all kinds of forms. But these, the pathway are the people who just immediately reject the good news of Jesus. In our society today, these are the people who preach tolerance, but are completely intolerable to the message of Jesus. Isn't it amazing how in the name of tolerance people can be so intolerable to what it is that goes against Whatever it is that they want you to tolerate, there's the rocky ground that the sowed, that the seeds fell on, that the word of God stands on, and this Jesus explains it, it represents those who immediately receive. They're like, "This is good news! Like God loves me! Like I want to be loved by God." But as they began to to explore uh, the scriptures and, and begin to live a life uh, after Christ, uh, they're persecuted because of their belief. And the way they they value what others view of them more than what God says about them. And so they they end up rejecting the soil uh, because they would rather be in good standing with the world and not face trials and tribulation because of their faith than they would stand with Christ and the gospel and face tribulation because of it. And then there's also the thorns. And the thorns, Jesus tells us, represent the soil or the people, the hearts of people who just simply the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches just wipe it away. This is the, the rich young ruler that approached Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, you know, keep the commandments, basically. And he goes, oh, I've done that. Okay, wrong. But it's amazing that Jesus doesn't even question him on that. Jesus just says, okay, let's get to the heart of it. Sell everything you have and come follow me. And the guy was sad. Because he was wealthy and he loved his wealth. And so his heart was the heart of the thorns where his, the cares of the world and, 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 the, and the deceitfulness of riches caused the, the word of the gospel to not grow. But then, praise God, there was also the good soil. The good soil are the hearts of the people who accept the word and they bear much fruit. This is in the face of tribulation, knowing that tough times are going to come, knowing that life doesn't get easier just because you're a Christian and God is sovereign, but knowing that suffering is a part of identifying with and following after Jesus. And these are people who say, you know what, I value God forgiving me of my sin so that I can enjoy him forever forever more than enjoying the temporary wealth and comfort that the world has to offer. And so that sets the, 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 the tone, if you will, for what the Apostle John is getting at here. Because in verse 15, he says, look at verse 15 with me. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not with him. And I just love it in the epistles uh, where it is just so black and white. He doesn't create this formula where if you only love certain things this much, the love of the Father is still in you. Because isn't that what we do? Like we say, well, I I struggle here, but I do really good here. So I'm going to count this as more. No, it's not what he does. Very easy. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Now notice, listen, Christian, notice. It does not say that you don't love the Father. The basis for our salvation is not how much we love the Father. The basis of our salvation is the fact that the Father loved us. And loving the world indicates that we have not received the love of the Father. That's why he says it is not in them. it has not The seed has not planted in them. They have not come to know the love of the Father as more valuable than the things of the world. This is why in our prayer... For our collective prayer, our corporate prayer request this year, number one is that we would grow in God's love for us. Contemporary Christianity and contemporary Christian music in particular is so quick to declare how great we are at loving God. And yes, we need to declare our allegiance to Jesus. But that allegiance is based on how much the Father loved us, not how great we are at loving the Father verse 16, he goes on and he says, so verse 15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world. And see, John defines for us here what he means by for all that is in the world. And what we could say this morning, and, 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 and the notes that will be up on the screen here in a moment, what we're going to say this morning is that we can, we can condense Okay? We can condense the worldly system into a threefold appeal. The world tries to appeal to us in three ways. Or the world tries to declare its greatness and its call for our loyalty in three different ways. And this is what the Apostle John lays out for them here. And First he says in verse 16, he says, The desires of the flesh. Some of your versions, depending on what version you have, it doesn't say the word desires, it says the word lust. It's the lusts of the flesh. And the Apostle John wants them to know that the lusts of the flesh is from the world, it is not from the Father. And what does he mean by lusts of the flesh or the desires of the flesh? Well, this term flesh in Scripture, in the New Testament specifically, it refers to the nature of man, the sinful nature of man. It is our tendency to want to do what we want to do. It is our tendency to want to to declare what is good and what is right and what is perfect. It is our tendency to want to declare what justice looks like. I'm left to ourselves, justice equals revenge. I will pay you back and I will receive justice because I will do to you what you have done to me. And then some. Because our, just, our system of justice requires that we one-up the, the offense, right? You see, the world wants us to find our fulfillment in our ability to make our own choices. Adam and Eve thought that they would find their fulfillment and their identity in eating from the tree of the forbidden fruit. They believed the lie that by eating that tree, they would be like God. They thought, listen, they thought that they had the choice to be like God. And they took that choice. And I'm sure that the, the outcome and the consequence of that choice was not what they had envisioned. Do we ever, in our sin and our deciding what is good and right and perfect and what should be done, does does it ever, when we take it in our, when we when we act in the flesh, do the consequences ever look like what we expect them to look like? Do you listen, if if, a Christian, do you ever feel condemnation um, in temptation? No, because you're being lied to, right? You feel the conviction and or condemnation because, listen, when you sin, the enemy's not always going to glorify your sin. The enemy is going to come after you and, and condemn you for your sin and try and separate you further from the Father because he doesn't want you coming back to the Father in your sin. But this is what He says: If it's from the flesh, if it's the natural tendency of man to, to want to make his own choices, to declare what is right and wrong, it's, it's, it's the opposite of allowing God. The, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, Proverbs writes. That is always, that can very easily be a very mind-boggling verse, but what the, what the writer of the Proverbs is saying is that, listen, wisdom begins, true wisdom begins in knowing that it comes from the Father. We fear stepping outside of the Father's plan. We fear the consequence of rejecting the Father's command to repent, to follow. We fear, listen, we fear trying to equate ourselves with God by declaring what is true and what is not true. Wisdom can only begin when we realize that we are under God, not equal to God. Wisdom can only begin when we realize that in and of ourselves, left to ourselves... There is no hope. It doesn't matter what we figure out scientifically, mathematically, socially. It doesn't matter when it comes to salvation and the covering of our sins. Continue to pursue knowledge. Great. But if your pursuit of knowledge is because it makes you feel better about yourself, then what does it profit you if you've gained all the knowledge in the world, but yet you've forfeited your soul? Back to our parable in Matthew 7 about the two paths. You see, the way is easy according to the lusts of the flesh because we get to make the choices. Who wants to be told what to do? That looks about right. Thank you for cooperating in the poll this morning. Even in the simplest things, doesn't our... mind does... Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me I can only go 70. Don't tell me not to text while I'm going 70 and changing lanes. Right? But the world appeals to the lusts of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. And John says, listen, little children... That is not from the Father. That is from the world. And if you live according to the lust of the flesh, if you're constantly trying to achieve the lust of the flesh, then the Father is not in you. And you don't fully know the love of the Father. The second... The second way that the world tries to appeal to us is through the lust of the eye. So the, the flesh is the natural tendency of man to want to be God and to, de, to decide what is right and wrong and what should and should not be done. But then now he says the lust of the eye. So verse 16 again, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. You see, the eyes are the means by which we are most often tempted. Typical Sunday in our home looks like getting home, relaxing, put as many kids to bed as we can, and sitting on the couch and watching football. Relaxing. Katie and I just sitting and watching football. Which usually ends with me falling asleep and her playing a game on her phone. That's a good Sunday. But this afternoon when you guys go home and flip on the television... Pay attention to the commercials. Marketing, marketing, marketing. How do businesses grow? Marketing. Get your name out there, right? Associate with something that is good, according to pop culture, or something that appeals to your eyes, right? Does it take a half-dressed woman to sell a really good hamburger? It doesn't. But does it work? It does. Does it take any of the actual means by which people market to really? I mean, it doesn't, the commercials don't make the beer taste better or the burger taste better or the car go faster, right? But they're appealing to the sense of humanity. Like, you want this. Castle and Cook, when they're advertising homes, they don't show you the worst lot in the worst part of town, right? And say, hey, come live with us. We're in the ghetto. They don't, like, they don't even try to spin that, right? What do they show you? A nice big house with nice floors and countertops and, and a mom and a dad, which although that's going to slowly change, we can see it in the television sitcoms already, Pretty soon, the, the commercials will begin to change as well. They'll follow suit. But right now, it's a mom and a dad and two kids, because that's what people can handle, and a puppy, and a nice, safe, clean, gated neighborhood. And you're like, what do you say? I want that. That looks comfortable. That house is cleaner than my house. Those kids are quieter than my kids. Right? Those they don't. Notice how they never show neighbors in in house commercials. (laughs) There's a reason. But it's the lust of the eyes, the means by which we are most often tempted. You see, the world wants us to find our fulfillment in what we don't have, and isn't that so? We're going to see that's going to be somewhat contradictory message. The world. Throws out contradicting messages all the time because it just wants to, to draw you in by any means necessary. So, according to Matthew 7, the two pathways, the way is easy because we decide what we want. That way is easy because we spend our money based on what makes us feel best about ourselves. That way is easy because on Halloween I can sit in my house with my lights off. Nobody comes up to my door and knocks and bugs me. That way is easy. It's the way of the world. But the love of the Father is not in the way of the world. The love of the Father says we're going to buy the best candy and we're going to hand it out and we're going to be inconvenienced on Halloween. The love of the Father says we're not going to do what we would normally want to do and not be bugged by people because, you know, that's inconvenience. I'm going to stay home and watch the World Series. The love of the Father says we're going to die to our own desires. And we're going to love the people around us the way the Father has loved us. This is why it is so important that he says that the love of the Father is not in you. You see, loving people according to the way the Father has loved you makes no sense if you don't know how the Father has loved you. But he's telling them, little children, as little grandchildren, the Father has loved you. You know the Father's love. So live a life in accordance with the Father's love, not a life in accordance with the world. The third assault that the world puts on us is the pride of possessions. Some of your translations say the pride of life. That word life, it is not the same word that we use, to, that, that the Bible often uses to translate the word heart, meaning the, the, the core of man or the core of what we do. But actually we see the same word used in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, and it's translated the word goods, stuff, the pride of possession. The world, the way of the world is to have your pride and to be known by your possessions, this word life, if your Bible uses the word life in, in chapter 17 here, it's the same way that we would say, uh, "I'm making, how do you make a living? What do, you, what, do you, what do you do to get stuff? And the world wants us to find our fulfillment in what we have. which is so contradictive to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Because the lust of the eyes, it's what you don't have. And the pride of possessions is what you don't have. Now listen, this one can be tricky. This is not just wanting more stuff. But this is the stuff that you do have, whether it be, listen, this can be twofold, pride of, pride of possessions, whether it be, because the stuff that you have is where you find fulfillment and value, okay? Or whether it be because the stuff you have makes you feel better than other people. You might look at your life and say, oh, you know, I could do without that. That doesn't, but, but, but really, when you look at yourself and you evaluate your life compared to your neighbor's life, your coworker's life, your enemy's life, that stuff makes you feel better than them because you have it and they don't. And so pride of possessions is the way of the world. And John says, I want you to know. I want you to know the way the world is going to assault you. I want you to know what what it looks like to live in accordance with the world so that you would run from it, so that you would flee from it, You see, living according to the pride of possessions is easy because it allows us to define ourselves. We define who we are. Either by our our economic status or by our hobbies. We define it outside of God. But in verse 16, he says... um, but, excuse me, at the end of verse 16, he says, but all of this is, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Randy Roberts, who's a professor at Western Seminary, recently tweeted this out. He says, we, and when he says we, he's talking to the church, to God's people. Okay, not, not the world, but God's people. So this is for, for, for us who, who have been saved. Right, He says, um, we have elevated disobedience to a place that we are now praying for discernment as to how we can proceed with it. We have elevated our comfort above the needs of those who are less fortunate to a place that we now pray to God and ask for discernment on how we can move forward seeking our own good above the good of others. We find our 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 value and our identity in what we do. So we pray that God would bless that and prosper it, so that we could continue to define ourselves by that. And that is the state of the church nationally. Let's say, right? But let's not neglect. Let's not let's not be naive and say that that's not the state of our own hearts as well. That there aren't times where we will try to every end to justify our sin to the point of asking God how we can find a loophole around it. People ask me all the time, or I hear it all the time, I should say, um, you know, well, you ask them to, or you, you talk to them about witnessing to their neighbor. Well, I'm going to have to pray about that. No, you don't. <laughs> no. You can pray for wisdom and what will best be effective in reaching them, but you don't pray for a red light, green light. God has said, as you go into the world, make disciples. That includes the people you don't like. Then in verse 17, he says, And the world is passing away, along with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, there is a path that leads to eternal life in the joy and presence of God Almighty. And there is a way, a path that that leads to eternal life, yes, but it's completely removed from any goodness and grace and love that you have ever known. Even common graces that we experience together now. And John says to the church and to us today, remember, these guys, this church is probably pretty shooken up because they just had a church split. They're being questioned and challenged because the reason of the church split wasn't just because the color of the carpet or because we put used pallet wood up in the building, but it was because of the means of salvation. There was no way they could both be right. And the Apostle John says that I want you to know that the way of the world is passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The word abides means to live in or to remain in Whoever does the will of God abides in God or will remain in God. See, he's not talking about annihilation after death for those who are not saved. He's saying that those who do the will of God will remain with God in his will forever. That's what the word abide means. We learned that word this week, huh, guys? Our young guys in our our young guys' Bible study. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says it very simply. This is the will of God. Obey what he says. Why don't we memorize that verse? It isn't gain more knowledge. It isn't be a better person. It's obey. So what do we do with these desires? How do we obey? one, we submit these desires, the lusts of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of life, we submit them to the will of God. We humble ourselves and say, God, this is, this is what my natural tendency is. God, this looks good to me. But it's against your will. But we have to start with a position of humility so that we can actually submit to them and say, God, this is less than you. This is less than what you have. A.W. Tozer wrote that much of our difficulty stems from our unwillingness to take God as He is and adjust our lives accordingly. After we submit our will, these desires to the will of God, we confess them. We confess them and say, God, this is not according to your will. This is sinful. This is wrong. This is in accordance with the world, not in accordance with the Father then we repent from them. We turn from them. We attribute the value, whatever, we, whatever value we were attributing to that sin or that possession or that desire, we take that value, we take it from that thing or that person, and we attribute we put that value on Christ. We say, you know what, the value that I have in being identified as a child of God is more worthy than the value I have as being identified as whatever it was, a working man, a father, a husband, a mother. And the last thing that we are to do with these desires is we're confide in others for support and fighting them. We don't hide it. We're free to confess it and confide in the church that we could receive prayer and encouragement and accountability. And so with that, this morning, the first Sunday of the month, we also do communion together.